we saw that Eve was fully woman before God ever brought her to Adam. Carolyn McCulley says we are feminine, and remember Jamie helped us understand that doesn't just mean pink, although I guess I wear the right color. Um, it just means God's design for us as women, right? We are feminine from the moment we're conceived because that's God's design, and he has a purpose for our femininity throughout the various seasons of our lives. Through those seasons, we have a variety of roles, and sometimes we're going to be single, and sometimes we may be married. So we all need to understand God's design for singleness so that we can savor singleness and appreciate singleness and display Christ well in singleness and make the most of the opportunities that are unique to that season of life. Understanding God's design for singleness also helps us to appreciate and encourage our sisters in Christ who are single, our children Sometimes it's our parents, but to help others understand the goodness of God's design in that season. And so when we all understand that better, as the body of Christ, we all just care for one another better. We display Christ together more fully. Now, of course, we also need to understand God's design for displaying his image in marriage so that the way we think about marriage and talk about marriage and live out our marriages, make much of God's design for marriage. If we're single, we need to know God's design for marriage, so we're prepared if God brings marriage to us. And we need to know what God's word says so that we can encourage others in their marriages. Maybe we have grown children. Maybe we can help friends learn to esteem marriage in a more biblical way. Another thing to think about is that none of us know how long we will be single or how long we'll be married. My grandma died last year, and she was almost 101 years old. She was the quintessential farm wife. That's all she ever did. She was married for 53 years. That meant that she spent almost 48 years of her life being single. That's longer than I've been alive. Not by much, but... She was single longer than I'd been alive. On average, women live seven years longer than men. Many of us will be widows. Even if we are married now, we are in a temporary, earthly condition. There is no human marriage in heaven. Human marriage is just a shadow of the eternal marriage of Christ and his bride, the church. And that is a marriage that all believers will participate in. But right now, we honor and adore our Savior as we embrace his design for women in each season. And as we encourage one another to do the same. So we're going to start with God's purpose for life. Why did he make us? Why did he save us? And um, before we jump into this, I I want to uh, point out to you where you can find where this came from. You know, uh, at the beginning of Wellspring, you were told that most of these lessons came from build lessons. And this lesson actually came from, uh, mostly from a set of sermons that Scott Maxwell gave in 2004. And if you've ever been to a wedding that he did, you will have heard very similar things from him there. I had trouble finding it on the website, so I'm just going to tell you how to find it because they really are worth listening to. I, I refer people to them all the time. 
But if you click on sermons and then click on all sermons and then you search in the little search bar on the right and type in saving and savoring, then they'll all pop up. So, And then you'll also hear me refer to Carolyn McCulley. Saving and savoring. Yeah. And I also, you'll hear me refer to Carolyn McCulley um, several times through here. She has several blogs, and you can find her articles online. She's written a couple books, and they were just very helpful to me, so you can find her online as well. Okay, so go ahead and turn over to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to jump into our lesson. We're at number one on the outline, man created in God's image. I should actually look at the outline so I can tell you if you really are on the outline. Okay. Well, just like we did with biblical womanhood, we need to start all the way back at creation in Genesis 1 and then trace God's design through to the New Testament. So we're going to take a look at Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26. And it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then in verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so did you see, this is kind of an aside, but when he uses the word man, he's referring to male and female. So in this context, when we see the word man, he's talking about men and a man and a woman. And there are two important points we want to see in these verses. The first is that God created man, male and female, in his own image. And then the second is that we actually get a little bit of glimpse of what that image of God is. In verse 26, God describes himself with the plural pronoun, our And in verse 27, he refers to himself with the singular pronoun, his. So right here in the first chapter of Genesis, God is hinting that there's this unity and trinity in the Godhead, that they're three in one, that there's a seamless unity within the Godhead. And man is created in that image. Somehow, this seamless, invisible unity of the Godhead is made visible in man, that was God's purpose for man to bear his image, displaying in some way his seamless unity. But Genesis doesn't tell us what it is about that unity that actually is the image of God. Now turn on over to Genesis 5. We're at number 2 on the outline. You'll remember last time when we were together that sin entered the world in Genesis 3. The serpent came Eve fell for the temptation. She was turned into a self-grasper. And then Adam gave in. And two self-graspers obscured the image of God in them. And we've all been plagued with that. Genesis 5 shows the impact that the fall had on man's ability to bear God's image. So we're going to start by looking at the second part of verse 1 where it just says... um, In the day when God created man, he made man in the likeness of God. That's what we saw in Genesis 1.26. God made man in his own image. But now look at how that's different than the second part of verse 3. It says, he, referring to Adam, became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image. Now did you see the difference there? In verse 1, God created man in the likeness of God. But in verse 3, Adam became the son, the father of a son in Adam's own likeness, according to Adam's image. 
Because of the sin that entered the world in Genesis 3, Adam was unable to pass on the same uncorrupted image of God in which he was created to his son. He can only pass on his own sinful image, a corrupted image of God. So man's ability to bear God's image is all but destroyed because of sin. And we're left wondering more than ever, well, what is the image of God? Well, thankfully, Jesus came perfectly bearing God's image. And we looked at that last time in Colossians 1 and Philippians 2. That's number three on your outline. We saw that Jesus is the image of God. So we look to him to understand what God's image is. And what did we find? That he's a servant. The image of God is that of serving, of not grasping for yourself, but of giving yourself away like a slave does. It's surrendering yourself. So in Genesis 1, we saw seamless unity. In Jesus, we see self-giving love. So we can describe the image of God as a seamless unity cemented with self-giving love. You're going to hear that phrase a lot today. The image of God is one of seamless unity cemented with self-giving love. The unity is so interconnected that they can be spoken of as one because there's this self-giving love that flows between the members of the Godhead. That's what God created us to reveal about himself. And only because of our perfect Jesus do we understand that. And the beauty and the power of the gospel is that the ability for us to bear God's image is restored in Christ. Turn on over to Romans 8.29. We're at 4 on the outline. And Romans 8.29 shows us God's intent to restore the believer to bearing his image. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to be restored to being an image bearer of God. Colossians 3.10 makes the same point when it says, We've put on the new self who is being renewed according to the image of the one who created him. That is what happens when a life is impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. When a rebel comes to repentance and faith in Christ, she's forgiven. She's made a new creation. She's freed from sin's power. She is renewed into an image bearer of God. She's restored to displaying the self-giving, self-emptying, serving love of Christ. She's a slave who joyfully gives herself away for the sake of her Savior. It's what we see in Jesus. So, we saw that we were created to bear God's image, but sin corrupted God's image in us. And then Christ came and perfectly bore God's image, and he restores us to God's image through a relationship with himself. Therefore, the greatest relationship is that which we have with Jesus. That is the great relationship. If we had no other relationship, that is it. 
That is what we are to be most concerned with. That's the relationship that shapes our hearts to, into being something beautiful in which our creator... I'm just going to start over. This is what we are to be most concerned with. This is the relationship that shapes our hearts to be something beautiful to our creator. And that's where scripture's emphasis lies. In fact, if we find ourselves thinking about marriage and singleness as vastly divergent paths, kind of like, well, if you're married and you stay home, it's kind of okay to, to be that biblical woman thing. But, you know, I'm a career girl. And my life is just different. If we're thinking that way, that's just evidence we've let that feminist thinking creep in. Because God's word speaks clearly to the kind of women we are as we bear his image. And whether we're married or not, that's just the circumstance in which we live out that image of God that he's created us to bear. Even if we are satisfied in our marriage, that's a temporary relationship, remember? Our marriage is not, it must not be the greatest relationship in our lives. See, our tendency is to think that I need some other relationship other than or in addition to Jesus. If I'm single, I might think, you know what, I just I just need to be in a relationship. You know, and, and I just maybe I need to pursue that relationship. And then I'm going to be satisfied. Or if I'm married, I might think, you know what? I just really need my husband and my children to satisfy me. What's wrong? I'm not feeling satisfied by these people. We have this need, and we think that need's going to be met by a human relationship. And the whole time we're thinking that way, we're completely missing the fact that no human relationship was ever designed to satisfy that which we can only find in Jesus. Now, I found this in an article by Carolyn McCulley. She, um, she says she found it tucked away in a secular women's magazine, and I just thought it was an interesting little nugget I wanted to share with you. And it says, Despite the conventional wisdom, being married boosts happiness only one-tenth of a point on an 11-point scale. Okay, that's less than 1%. I had to figure that out. Most people are no more satisfied with life after marriage than they were before. Although happiness rises after exchanging vows, most people return to their pre-marriage level within two years. The same is true for people who win the lottery. (laughs) Okay, well, she comments on this by saying, we shouldn't be surprised. This mainstream study confirms what we read throughout the Bible. God has designed us to find our ultimate fulfillment in him, not in anything or anyone that he's created. Scott Maxwell put it this way back in 2004. You have it in your notes. The happiest, most satisfied people are those pursuing Jesus aggressively, passionately, supremely, constantly. And some of them are single. Some of them are married. So see, this is not even an issue about marriage or singleness. This is an issue about our heart. This is about worship. Genuine love for Christ drives me to worship him and trust him for everything. And that's what Christ has called us to and enables us to do through our relationship with him, through keeping that relationship first. And so that's why we must never, ever, ever, ever take discipline one lightly or skip over it or think that I'm doing okay. You know, I I had an interesting conversation at the last Wellspring, and I realized that I think sometimes in my mind, I think that if I'm sliding on discipline one, I'm not being real diligent about that, that the sky should fall or something, right? Like something really bad should, should go, should happen, 
just to show me that that's what I get for not doing discipline one or something, right? And somebody else said, like, actually, what happens, what she's noticed happens most often when she neglects discipline one is she just becomes more and more self-confident, <laughs> you know, just more and more self-reliant, more and more, you know, falsely confident in her ability to handle life. And I think that was really true. I think that's, that's exactly what happens. The more time I spend away from the Lord, the more confident I am in my ability to manage life without him, which is just sinful, false, deceitful thinking. Okay. But discipline one is in how we cultivate that greatest relationship, the relationship with the only one who truly knows us inside and out, who truly loves us, who never leaves us or forsakes us, who offers us an intimacy and a security and a hope that extends far beyond anything this world has to offer. Prayerfully shepherding our hearts toward God through the word of God is how we participate in that renewal into bearing the image of God in our own lives so that we can be more concerned with loving and serving others than we are with how they satisfy us. So what does that mean specifically for bearing God's image as a single woman? Turn over to John 17. We're at 5A on the outline. Now remember... The image of God is one of seamless unity, cemented with self-giving love. That's the phrase we're going to keep coming back to. And I love John 17 because that's exactly what Jesus prayed for. His last night with his disciples. Just listen as he pours out his heart to the Father. Beginning in verse 20, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Now, who is he talking about here? He's talking about us, right? The church. We are the ones who have believed in Jesus through the words of Jesus' apostles. So verse 21, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, are in me, and I in them, that they also may be in us. that the world may believe that you sent me. And why did he pray that we'd be one? So that others may believe in Jesus. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one just as we are. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Do you see what Christ prayed for us? That we'd be one. Just like the Father and the Son are one. It's a oneness that Jesus describes as being in one another. You, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us. That's a call to us as the body of Christ. 
No one is exempt. Too much is at stake. Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's pouring out his heart to the Father, asking that we would be one so that the world would know that the Father sent the Son and that the Father loves us even as he loved the Son. See, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Nothing less than the gospel is at stake in our oneness as the body of Christ. We may have seasons of singleness, but as believers, we are never, never, never called to isolation. We are members of a body. We need look no farther than Jesus himself to see that meaningful relationships were a source of strength and companionship in fulfilling his ministry, his ministry as a single man. When he was facing the cross, he went apart to pray right after this prayer in John 17. And he asked his closest friends, married and single men, to come and pray with him. Now that's not to say it's always easy to be single. Not always easy to be married either, is it? But, and we will talk about shepherding our hearts through some of the challenges that different seasons bring. But always, always, we need to start with the truth of God's word. That's, that way we, we're laying a foundation of truth. That becomes our starting point. And we're looking to our creator and our designer to understand his purposes for the different seasons that he has for us. Well, let's move on to 5B on the outline. And I want to read you two verses, and I just want to see if you can find something that appears to be inconsistent or contradictory. It's not, but it just might look that way. So Genesis 2.18, we have God saying it's not good for man to be alone. And in 1 Corinthians 7.7, Paul writes, I wish that all men were even as I myself am, referring to his singleness. So, which is it? We just take a vote and say, okay, I vote for God and I vote for Paul. <laughs> not so much, right? No, so, but we have to figure out, well, is it good or is it not good for man to be alone? What is God's word teaching? And John Piper explains it by pointing out that two very significant events happen between these two verses. Genesis 2.18 was before the fall. But between that and 1 Corinthians 7, we have the fall into sin and we have the cross. So apparently, those two events had an impact on the natural world order that was in place in Genesis 2 so that in some circumstances, it is better for man to be alone. It was certainly better for Paul to be alone than to be married, he thought, because he was more devoted to Christ and the ministry Christ gave him. So does that make sense? In a pre-fall world, it wasn't good for man to be alone. But in our world, after the fall, after the cross, sometimes it is good for man to be alone in the sense that he doesn't marry. And knowing, knowing that God works all things together for good, for those who love him, Romans 8.28, we know that when we are single, it's good. And when we are married, it's good. Because ultimately, God is at work to make us more like Christ. Not necessarily to give us what we want, to make us happy or comfortable, give us a pain-free life, but to make us more like our Savior, to continue to restore us into his image. Remember, we're image bearers, seamless unity and self-giving love. What an amazing 
privilege we've been given in that. Well, let's go ahead and move on to C on the outline. You can turn over to 1 Corinthians 7. Now, Paul says some interesting things here. Um, And you'll see on your outline that it says the gift of singleness. And there can be a lot of confusion about that. So let's um, see if we can untangle that a little bit. And we'll start with 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. And he writes, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And by that he meant not to marry. In the culture of the day, a man would literally not have touched a woman to whom he wasn't married. So Paul says, it's good not to marry. And then in verses 2 through 5, he talks about marriage. Then in verse 6, but by this I say by way of concession, not a command. Paul wants to be clear that he's not commanding that anyone gets married. He underscores that again in verse 7, yet I wish that all men were even as myself am. Paul was single. However, each man has his own gift from God. One in this manner, another that. So Paul recognizes that each man has his own gift. And what's the context? What gifts is he referring to? Well, he's talking about singleness and marriage. Paul says that they're each a gift. Obviously, marriage and singleness are not the same as spiritual gifts that are given at conversion by the Holy Spirit. We don't find them in lists of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12 or Ephesians 4. But any time that we are single or are married, that season, however long it lasts, is God-given. Now, the Greek word for gift here is charisma. Its root is charis, which means grace. Singleness is a demonstration of God's grace. Now, when we give gifts, we can have all kinds of motives. We can be concerned with what the other person might think, maybe how our gift stacks up to somebody else's gift. Maybe maybe we're thinking about the cost, how much should we spend. Even if you're a real gift-giving person, you never have trouble figuring out, um, or never have trouble with the right motives for giving, you still might struggle to figure out the right gift for some people. But God is not like that. His gifts perfectly display himself. His gifts are a demonstration of his grace. And they're always perfect for enabling us to display his image, both individually and as the body of Christ. Singleness is a gift for whatever season we possess it. Now, that doesn't mean it won't ever be hard, but we can trust the loving hand that has given the gift. He is the one who sustains us and satisfies us with his abundant mercies every single day, day by day. Now, hearing that singleness is a gift might really take you by surprise, and you might really not even like hearing that. So again, I want to share with you from Carolyn McCulley, because she, ex- she ex- again starts with the explanation of the word charisma as a gracious endowment, where the emphasis lies on the grace involved in being so gifted. And then she writes, we need to understand what kind of gift we're talking about when we discuss the gift of singleness. It's not a gift that we have to spend time trying to identify, right? You just know you have it if you have it, right? 
um, or even worrying that we're going to have it forever. If we're single today, then we have the gracious gift of singleness today. Not necessarily forever, but we have it today. And how we may feel about it. Do I like being single? Would I rather be married instead? That's just not part of the equation. The emphasis here is on a gracious God who gives good gifts. And ultimately on his purpose for giving them. The gift is not an activity or a role. It's not something you go do. It's a blessing, like the free gift, the charisma of eternal life in Romans 5.15 that was given to us without any merit of our own. So whether we're married or single, it is a demonstration of God's grace to us. His means for us to display his his image in unity, and self-giving love with his body in that season of life. So, letter D, what are some of the unique ways that the gift of singleness is designed to display God's image? What are the privileges of singleness? Well, we're already in 1 Corinthians 7. Let's look at verse 34. It says, the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And I say this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now, did you see what it says about the single woman in Christ? that she's concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and spirit. And then Paul says that this is to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean a married woman can't be concerned about the things of the Lord. Of course not. And it certainly doesn't mean that a single woman shouldn't desire marriage. Of course not for that either. But when we are single, we have unique opportunities in these areas if we are shepherding our hearts to be concerned about the things of the Lord. If we're concerned with holiness in body and spirit, then we can use our unique availability for undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now again, it's not wrong to desire marriage. That's a good desire, especially if your desire is to display God's image in that marriage. But God may have something different for you other than what you desire. The desire for marriage isn't wrong, but we have to just be really careful because it can so easily become an idol. Um, We can use it as an excuse to maybe manipulate our circumstances to try to fulfill that desire. So daily, we need to entrust those desires to him and thank him for his good design for each season that he has for us and then joyfully pursue that undistracted devotion to our Savior. So we've taken a look at some of the things God's Word says. We've seen how our fundamental, uh, how fundamental our relationship with Jesus is and our relationship with the body of Christ is in displaying God's image to the world. And we've seen that singleness is a gift and it's a privilege. But all that being said, we don't always view singleness as a gift or a privilege sometimes, sometimes do we? Um, 
There are times where it can be hard, lonely, awkward, painful. There are seasons of grief caused by hope deferred. Sometimes when we're struggling, it can just be hard to know, is it okay to grieve? Or am I just feeling sorry for myself? Is this self-pity? Now, again, I want to turn to Carolyn McCulley um, and share some of what she says in answer to this question because it helps me shepherd my own heart. She says, the most telling difference between self-pity and grief is our attitude toward God and the loss. It's a very real loss to have dreams deferred or die to wait. Marriage seems so commonplace that to remain single when you desire otherwise truly can be a form of suffering. While those who grieve for a tangible loss seem to work through it within a defined season, there's a circular aspect to mourning extended singleness. Though we might do well from one holiday to the next, um, the cumulative effect of facing yet another Valentine's Day, for example, can trigger that grief once again. These holidays also trigger that same experience for those who've lost a loved one, but that grieving seems to diminish over time, whereas it can actually increase over time with, for those with deferred hopes. Yet, the Lord wants to interrupt that pattern of mourning with the joy that overflows to us by the power of his Holy Spirit. So how is that possible? She asks. Again, she says, let's consider again the difference between grief and self-pity. Self-pity turns its gaze inward, focusing only on ourselves. It says, I am worthy of so much more. Why has this been withheld? It's a response of pride. I can respond that way to lots of things that I want. Therefore, it's accompanied by an inconsolable, demanding spirit. Self-pity leads us to assume the worst. Lord, don't you care? True Christian grief says, like Jeremiah did in Lamentations 3, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. Though he brings grief, He will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. She goes on to say that we care well for one another when we listen compassionately to one another's struggles, ask wise questions that expose what we really believe about God and about ourselves, help us see if we're thinking biblically, and then remind one another of what's true because of the cross and what the reality that lies ahead for every believer. The bottom line is this. If the wonderful, glorious, precious promises of heaven and all that has been secured for us in the manifold mercy found at the cross don't penetrate the fog of our grief, we can be sure that self-pity has hardened our hearts. And she concludes by saying, there's a vast difference between being told to get over it and being equipped with truth that helps us vanquish both self-pity and grief. And as I read quite a few articles and, and excerpts from some of Carolyn's books and saw her respond to the challenges of singleness by over and over again pointing to the character of God, pointing to the gospel, exhorting us to be devoted to the Lord in prayer and reminding us of our eternal hope, I kept thinking, that's just what I need to hear. That's no different for me because, see, heart shepherding is heart shepherding. 
The issues may change, our circumstances change, but the answer doesn't change. Whatever the circumstance, learning to trust God, learning to find our contentment in him, it takes practice. It's something we have to learn, and we can help one another learn. So that brings us to F. Um, Let's take a look at some examples of undistracted devotion to the Lord. Back in 1 Corinthians 7.34, we saw Paul wanted the church to value the privilege of singleness in order to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And scripture provides a great cloud of witnesses who live this out. And there is a lot of variety. God does not have a cookie cutter for what a single person, or a married person for that matter, looks like. We have Ruth who was devoted to her mother-in-law, and she did hard physical labor as part of her ministry. And then the Proverbs 31 woman might surprise you to find her listed as a role model for single women, and I was too at first, but just listen to what I learned. I think this is so interesting. Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31, is an acrostic, which means each line starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's attributed to the mother of King Lemuel, who instructed her young son through a memory game, both to learn the alphabet and to learn the qualities of a virtuous wife. In other words, she wanted this future ruler, her young son, to know by heart what to look for in a single woman to ensure that he would find someone who would make an excellent wife. It's true that the role described in Proverbs 31 um, is that of a wife, but her godly, noble character is what all women should cultivate. Isn't that just awesome? I just thought that was so cool. And it also makes understanding singleness in a biblical way so much bigger than just whether we're single or not. It's about what we teach our children, right? Are we going to train up our sons and our daughters to understand biblically what godliness looks like? There's Tabitha. She abounded with kind, charitable deeds. She made clothes for widows. There's Lydia. She was the first convert in Europe, um, known for opening up her home. She was a successful businesswoman. There's Anna. She was uh, one who recognized Jesus was the Messiah in the temple when he was just a baby. She was devoted to prayer and fasting and thankfulness. She spoke to others about Messiah. Mary Magdalene is prominent in the gospel narratives. Um, She was generous with her financial resources. Mary and Martha will get a whole lesson on them soon, but they're noted for their hospitality. Among women in scripture, there is just this huge variety in their resources, their background, their economic status, their circumstances. Um, you received a handout today, I think, um, by Women in the Bible, and that can just be a that's just a tool for you to hopefully encourage your heart to get a broader picture about what God says about women in the Bible and examples of women in the Bible. As a woman, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, God has placed you there to show and tell the goodness of his design for women so that that's a stepping stone for people seeing the goodness of his salvation. Praise God. That is the testimony that many, if not all of you, already live out. I see it just even when I get to talk with you, conversations at church. It's really encouraging to see the result that that gospel is already having in your lives. So we're going to take a quick look at some specific implications of God's design for us to bear his image in seasons of singleness. 
So we're going to think about these in terms of the Wellspring disciplines. Um, discipline one is all about our heart. God's design calls, number one, for ongoing renewal of our minds, shepherding our hearts with truth, with the truth of God's word, drawing near to him, preaching the gospel to ourselves, confessing sin, remembering our identity in Christ, fueling that undistracted devotion to the Lord. Number two, we saw in um, chapter 1 Corinthians 7, it elevates personal purity and holiness in body and spirit. In terms of discipline two, the home, God's design strengthens our commitment to growing in unity, love, and service with those in our home and family. Number four, God's design encourages hospitality and ministry in our home. Invite other people into where you live. Nurturing, shepherding, reaching out. Those things aren't on hold because you're single. Um, Mary and Martha are a really great example of that. Um, And you can get creative about doing it with people. Um, Finding a married couple that you can share in their hospitality if you don't feel like you have a place. Or perhaps partnering with another single woman to entertain together if trying to get the dinner ready and host everybody at the same time is kind of a lot. Or you just get pizza and bring it in together. Um, Number five, God's design humbles the single woman to seek wisdom and protection from Christian parents, church leaders such as elders, small group leaders, older women. Um, More than likely, as a single woman, you're going to have a lot more interaction with the world, which means you have a lot more opportunities to be a light. But it also means you're a lot more vulnerable to the influences. And so it's just really God's grace that he provides that protection through families and through the church. Okay, in terms of ministry, discipline three, God's design underscores the importance of relationships within the body of Christ for fellowship, service, other expression of the New Testament one another's. In particular, it keeps small group involvement a priority. That is just a great place where we can care for others as well as be cared for by others. Um, it's also been, this is an application we're going to get in the marriage section next week also, but it's been really encouraging to see how many single women at Grace Bible Church have been very intentional about building relationships with a particular family or a particular couple or a couple of families. And it's just been really encouraging to see their heart to minister to the family and helping with practical needs, maybe with um, child care and things like that. But then to also see the shepherding care and sometimes helping with practical needs, car issues or whatever, that the the family or the couple can serve the single woman with. And um, I think, I hope that after seeing what God's Word says, and especially John 17, that we just all have a, a greater awareness and sense of cultivating those relationships and I think you have a question on the homework that will kind of help you evaluate that and and think about that okay finally number seven God's design for us as women when we're in seasons of singleness challenges us to prayerfully and intentionally live out biblical femininity to be godly holy Industrious, to cultivate that quiet and gentle servant's heart in every 
sphere of influence in our home, in our school, in our work, church. And when we do that, we get to put on display Philippians 2, beginning in verse 14. It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. See, these implications clearly are not for single women alone. As women, as women, it should be a joy to know that God made us to be women and he's orchestrating every season of our lives to make us more like himself and to display his gospel to the world. So I want to finish with a quote from Tozer. I think it's on the back of your notes. And it says, When I have God for my treasure, I have all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied me, or if I am allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so timbered that they will never be necessary to my happiness. Or if I must see them go one after another, I will scarcely feel a sense of loss for having the source of all things I have in one all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever I may lose, I've actually lost nothing. For now I have it all in one, and I have it purely, legitimately, and forever. May we be women who plead with God that that would be true of us, increasingly so. So next week... We will pick up where we've left off, um, and we will address specifically um, what God's Word says about bearing His image in marriage. And just as it's so important as the body of Christ that we all understand God's design for biblical womanhood and for bearing that the image of God in singleness, it's equally important that we all have that esteem for God's design for marriage. So I really hope that you'll be able to be back next week. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way you have encouraged me through your word. And Lord, it's just so sweet that the more you teach us and the more you help us understand who you are and how you've designed us, how you've designed us to interact with you and how you've designed us to interact with one another and how you've called us to display your marvels of the gospel to the world, it really does just help us love you more what what a privilege to be your child thank you for gathering us together i pray that you would be pleased to bring fruit in jesus name amen